Proverbs chapter 9 this morning. Proverbs chapter 9. Glad you guys can make it out here and join us. Let's have a word of prayer and then we shall start. Heavenly Fathers, we're just here this morning. We're here to learn of you, to grow in you, to go deeper in you. I pray that you would teach. We would listen through your Holy Spirit, make these words alive and active. And Lord, help us then to take what we have learned and heard and go out there and represent you to a dying world and have a heart, a heart for that evangelism, a heart for just, Lord, to see souls saved in you, in your name. Amen. As we're continuing our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study through the book of Proverbs, we're almost to Proverbs chapter 10. And Proverbs chapter 10 is what you guys are probably normally used to when it comes to the book of Proverbs. These short little one-two sentence little Proverbs. And, And that's what we love. I'm looking forward to getting to that. But the groundwork has to be laid through the previous nine chapters to get to this. Because remember, the the emphasis of Proverbs is this. It's godly, practical wisdom. It's how to daily live for Jesus in a fallen world. We define wisdom as God's way of thinking. So when we want wisdom, we want God's way of thinking. And then we have knowledge, and then we have understanding. God's way of doing it, and God's way of applying it. And then when you put all three of those together, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, God's way of thinking, God's way of doing it, and God's way of applying it, boy, you will be blessed. And that's the point of then blessed in this world with the joy and peace of knowing that you're doing God's will. When we do not walk in wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, we're going to cause ourselves problems. And that's what you see throughout the book of Proverbs. Please remember, Proverbs is not deep on end times. It's not deep on theology. The purpose of Proverbs is to give you daily, practical, godly advice in a fallen world. And we're really going to get into that next week. Now, can you just start in chapter 10? You can. That's what we like. That's what we enjoy. But if you don't lay the foundation of what wisdom truly is in the fear of the Lord, you're not going to be able to have knowledge and understanding of how to apply it and to do it once you get to chapter 10. So really, chapter 9 is kind of like the last review on wisdom before we get into the little nuggets of applying it. So remember, wisdom is generally personified as a woman. That's the way Proverbs is kind of showing us this idea of giving examples of the good woman and the bad woman. And you're going to see that this morning here, the idea of the good woman and of the bad woman. I think Renee announced during announcements, there are sheets available in the back that are just scripture, because we're going to finish with these sheets here as we get to some final points. So with that being said, let's jump right into this. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. She has sent out her maidens and cries out from the highest places of the city. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Come, eat of my bread. Drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live. And go in the way of understanding. First thing I want you to see is how wisdom desires to have a relationship with you. God wants you to have wisdom. He wants you to seek after wisdom. He wants wisdom to be a part of your life. And every decision you make, you stop and say, what is God's way of doing this, thinking this through, applying it? That's wisdom. And you see this idea of wanting to have a relationship with you. Look at verse 2. She slaughtered her meat. She's made a meal for you, mixed her wine, got the table all set for you. This is the idea of wisdom desiring to be with you. And then wisdom inviting you, verse 3, sends out the maiden, cries out from the highest places of the city. She is calling out for you. She is crying out for you. She's preparing the meal for you, the food for you, the drink for you to say, come sit with me, learn of me, grow with me. Wisdom is inviting. Wisdom is a blessing. Wisdom rewards. Wisdom leads. Wisdom guides. We want to walk in wisdom. 
And you see this beautiful picture of wisdom desiring to be with us, and I hope we desire to want to have godly wisdom. That's the first nine chapters here of Proverbs. Why is it so difficult for us? Verse 4, we're simple. Simple, we're naive, we're foolish. Simple does not mean mentally dumb. It means spiritually not smart. There's a huge difference there. This idea of simple, this naive, this foolish, it doesn't mean you're not smart. It means when it comes to spiritual matters, you're not smart. You're not thinking it through through the lens of God. You're just doing it. You're just repeating what you want to do in this flesh of what you want to do. And this idea of simple is repeated repeatedly. Verse 4, whoever is simple. Verse 6, you see it there. You see it in verse 16. This idea of simple people that are not spiritually thinking things through. Wisdom is saying, I want a relationship with you. I want to teach you how to pray through things. Search the scriptures for understanding and ideas. I want you to learn how to let the Lord speak through worship, through prayer, through the body of Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through the word. I want to teach you this. And I've invited you. I've made the meal. I've cried out for you. And it carries this deep passion of crying out. Just jump back to chapter 8. Remind us of what we read last week in verse 1. Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill beside the way where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the doors. You see this idea of wisdom at the high hill. These billboards, these signs crying out saying, come to me, people. All you who are simple, come to me and get wisdom. This is a repeated theme throughout the first nine chapters of Proverbs, and says kind of through the Spirit, Solomon's final point before he gets into what we have in chapter 10. One thing, though, look at verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. I love that envisionment of this beautiful, firm, stable house that wisdom has built. The idea of seven, seven represents completion in the Bible. Full, complete wisdom. If you've ever studied out any numbers in the Bible, you see seven repeated all the time. There's seven days of the week, a complete week. You know, when Noah went into the ark, he was told to take seven pair of clean animals. The idea of we need those seven. Jericho, seven days of marching, followed by seven times on the seventh day. There's example after example after example of seven representing this idea of completion. So when you see a house here in verse 1 of seven pillars, you're seeing a complete, firm, stable house of wisdom where the meal is prepared for you, the drink is prepared for you. Come, verse 5, eat of my bread, drink of the wine, forsake foolishness. Forsake that foolishness of simplicity, of following your flesh and what you think and walk in God's will and understanding. Beautiful picture of wisdom. The problem is we have another picture of, woman, of a woman here representing foolishness. Take a look at verse 13, same chapter. A foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knows nothing. For she sits at the door of her house on a seat by the highest places of the city to call to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. So now you have foolishness personified as a woman. Two complete different contrasts here. And let's compare and contrast these people. We talked about how wisdom in verses 1 through 6 is inviting, preparing you the meal, mixing the wine, making the table, sending people out. Verse 3, crying out. What does foolish needs to do? Foolishness, verse 14, she just sits at the door. She doesn't make a meal. She doesn't cry out. She doesn't send people out. She just sits at the door. She doesn't have to do a lot to come get our attention. 
You know why? Because my sinful nature is foolish on its own. You ever realize the things that we're really good at we're not allowed to do? I'm really good at sinning. No one ever had to teach me how to sin. You realize that? No one ever had to teach me how to lie. No one ever had to teach me how to lose my temper. No one ever had to teach me how to hold a grudge or be bitter. No one ever had to teach me pride. Right now we have seven kids in our home. And we are trying as best as we can to teach them wisdom. I don't have to teach the boys. You know, this is, this is how you get bitter, guys. And I want you to really work on getting bitter towards your brothers and holding that grudge for years. No, I have to teach them forgiveness. I don't have to teach them how to lose their temper. I need to teach them self-control. That's foolishness. Foolishness doesn't need to prepare a meal. Foolishness doesn't need to cry out. We choose to go down the path of foolishness pretty simply and pretty quickly. Because there's a sin nature inside of me that wants to do this. I want to sin. That's the battle I have on this earth through the Holy Spirit and through wanting to be like Jesus Christ. Is my flesh wants to do things that are wrong. That's why wisdom works so hard on calling out to us saying, have a relationship with me. Foolishness doesn't. And look what foolishness offers us compared to wisdom. Wisdom gave us what? Slaughtered meat? Mixed wine? Furnished table? What does foolishness give us? Verse 17. Bread and water. That's all foolishness will give you is bread and water. And here's the problem. We become happy with bread and water. Wisdom is offering you something so much deeper, so much better, so much stronger, and yet we're content to have bread and water because that's what brings us fun. I mentioned this quote to you, and I believe it's by C.S. Lewis, about how we are so content to play in mud pies when God is offering us something so much deeper in the joy of the Lord. You see the world out there that is content with this bread and water when wisdom wants to give them something so much more. And not just bread and water, verse 17, stolen water is sweet. Foolishness prevents, excuse me, presents sin as being fun. Stolen water is better. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Foolishness is presenting sin as being fun and enjoyable with no harm, no foul. I've joked with you before that if any of my kids go behind the couch, it's not a good thing. There's nothing to do behind the couch. I distinctly remember Tyrus when he was younger going behind the couch. Tyrus, where are you at? Tyrus, what are you doing? Look behind the couch. He had went and snuck this whole pile of candy and was just eating it behind the couch. Rafter after Why didn't he do it in the middle of the living room? Because stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. There's a reason why when we sin, we cover it up. There's a reason why we delete what we look at online. There's a reason why we don't tell people what we think or tell people what we do. There's a reason why we cover our tracks. Because we know it's wrong. And there's something fun about this foolishness of sin that brings this this enjoyment to this world. Where really wisdom is what's going to do it. This is why we got to be careful. Because as a church, as a body of Christ... Guys, we can't out-entertain the world. And we should never try to. That's not our goal. Because if you look here in verses 13 through 18, you see how people will simply go to stolen water and bread. They'll take the foolishness so quick. That's why the world just needs to do flashing lights and people will be attracted to it. We're trying to get people to look past the world. We're trying to present the simplicity of the life-changing message of Jesus Christ to a world that's in sin. And that's what we're trying to do. 
We're trying to get the world to look past the foolishness of here and now and look towards eternity. We're trying to get the world to look past the simple foolishness. Clamorous, verse 13, that brash, noisy, unruly that the world just offers. Dawn and I, about 20-some years ago, were driving out to California with a friend that was going to college out there. And it happened to be that the one stop that we stopped at for the night was uh, Las Vegas. And so the friend that was driving, he stopped and said, don't, don't you want to just see, you know, Las Vegas, the strip? So we drove down the strip, and he said, I want to stay on the Las Vegas strip. So we went and parked our car. And I can't remember where he parked his car at. I think he parked it at um, Treasure Island. And so the valet parked the car. We went in there and found out they didn't have any rooms. So we had to walk over to the Mirage. And, and here we are. We are at the time, I think, 20 years old. Uh, we're just carrying bags with us. I mean, we've been driving across country. And it was like one of those scenes in the movies. We went up to the person and said, we'd like to get a room tonight. And they wouldn't tell us the price. Literally wrote it on a piece of paper, folded it in half, and slid it to us. Because it's like, you guys can't. And I remember we looked at the price, and we said, this is crazy. We're not. We're not staying here. And our friend that was doing the driving said, I don't care how much it is. We're staying because he was so tired. So he went up. It's probably 11 o'clock, close to midnight. He went up and went to bed because he needed a rest. And Dawn was like, Dawn, we're not coming to Vegas again. So we went down. And we just walked the strip. Just to, And I'm telling you, is that not the picture of the world? The flashing lights. Everything is a good deal, supposedly. There's fun, supposedly, on every corner. It's just that. There's no way the church can out-entertain the world. And the problem is when churches, ministries, and pastors try to do that, you're never going to win. The world is content with stolen water and bread eaten in secret, and the world is content with the foolishness. We need to give them something that the world can't offer, and that's the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to do, because that foolishness is going to be there. Because verse 17, the world thinks it's good to be bad. They think it's fun to be bad. Stealing what? Water and bread when wisdom is offering you meat, mixed wine, and the table setting. Please understand the vast differences between personified wisdom as a woman and personified foolishness as a woman. Be careful what we get ourselves attracted to. Which then takes us back now to these middle verses. Verse 7. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. He who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he'll love you. Give instructions to a wise man and he will still be wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me your days will be multiplied and years of life will be added to you. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. And if you scoff, you will bear it alone. Verse 10 should sound really familiar to you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. There's our three words, guys. Wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. God's way of thinking, God's way of doing it, God's way of applying it. This is our last teaching on wisdom before we get to these little nuggets of Proverbs. And through the Spirit, Solomon is saying, remember this lesson. You want wisdom, you want knowledge, you want understanding, you want all of them. Put them together and that's where you will be blessed. Not walking in foolishness, not walking in the water and the bread, but in what wisdom has to offer you. And it comes back to verse 10, the fear of the Lord. Now, if you weren't with us when we did our first study in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 1, we'd spend a lot of time talking about the fear of the Lord. And I encourage you to go back, get a copy of it on CD, listen to it online, because that really laid the foundation for what we're going to talk about. The fear of the Lord is not walking in this terror 
of I hope I don't pray the wrong way. I hope I raise my hands right in worship. I hope I read enough today. No. It is this all-encompassing awe and respect for who God is. Hebrews says that our God is a consuming fire. And so when I am praying to God, there is this awe and respect for God for who he is. But at the same time, according to Corinthians, I'm his little boy and he's my daddy. But we want to have a fear of the Lord. We want to fear the Lord in every decision we make. Fear the Lord in our finances. Fear the Lord in our choices in life where we stop and say, this path right here is taking me down sin. I fear the Lord enough to say no. I fear the Lord enough to say, who am I to make any decision on my own? I I love the verse in James about how I'm just a vapor. A morning fog, the Bible says, that appears for a little while then disappears. It's foggy this morning and it's not going to be at 4 o'clock this afternoon. It disappears. Nearly every morning I get up and pray, Lord, I am a vapor, give me a vision. Because I want to know what you want me to do. I need to have the fear of the Lord in every decision I make. And I encourage you, remember that teaching. Pray through things, seek the Lord, what glorifies God. And then have enough fear of the Lord to say, Lord, this does not bring you honor and glory. And I'm not going to do it because it's going to hurt me and bring me away rather than help me and bless me. But we're also introduced to this word. And this word is going to be something that we're going to continue on here throughout the book of Proverbs. And the way I kind of teach this type of stuff is I do this. If we ever teach on fear of the Lord or baptism of the Holy Spirit, something like that, the first time it comes up, I usually stop. We do a big teaching on it. And then when we go through the rest of the book, I'll just refer you back to it, just like I referred you back to the teaching on the fear of the Lord. I hope you take the time and energy to go listen to it if you don't remember it or if you haven't heard it. So we're going to teach on this one word right now, verse 7. Hugh corrects a scoffer, gets shame for himself, and he rebukes a wicked man, only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will still be wiser. Teach a just man, who will increase in learning. Here's a word, 7 and 8, scoffer. Now, some of your translations don't say scoffer. Maybe boaster, mocker. It's not a word that you typically use. I doubt you've used the word too often in your wording of the idea of a scoffer. But it's a word I want you to learn here today, and I want you to learn a word I want you to learn and how to use and apply. Because when you understand what a scoffer is, it changes so much. Some of you work with scoffers. Some of you go to school with scoffers. Some of you live with a scoffer. Some of you married a scoffer. And some of you go to church with scoffers. They're going to be all over the place. Now, you don't use that term, this idea of a boaster, of a mocker. It's introduced here, but through the next uh, 20 chapters of Proverbs, it's used about a dozen times. It's going to come up a lot. And I think it's important for us to stop and understand what this scoffer is. Talking about arrogance and pride and the dangers of them. Now, scoffers are difficult. And, and there is no answer to deal with the scoffer. In fact, what you're going to see as we go through these verses, the Bible actually says there's really no way to reach a scoffer. They're just full of pride. Take a look at your sheets. We're going to start with the side that says a proud and haughty man. All these verses are the verses that deal with scoffer and Proverbs. And I wanted to give this to you so we could go through it together and let's learn this. Look at the first one, Proverbs 21, 24. A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name. He acts with arrogant pride. Did you note the repetition? He's proud, he's haughty, he's pride. As we've said many times out here at church, I think the last couple Sundays, God can work with murderers, Moses. He can work with adulterers, David. He can work with liars, Jacob. He won't work with pride. God will not work with pride. When you have pride, you're not allowing any room for the Lord to move and work in your life because you already know everything. 
You have it all figured out. And so this scoffer, this mocker, this boaster, this arrogant talker, a proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name, he acts with arrogant pride. And I'm telling you right now, you are going to run into them. And as we go through this, you're going to walk out of this. After the 830 service, I had people come up to me and said, I know what you're talking about. I never knew the name, but I know that personality. Scoffers are difficult. You're scared to talk to them. Because if you bring up the wrong thing, they're going to get upset. You walk in eggshells around them. You want to have the simplest, easiest conversation with them. to Not to get to anything in depth, because this is going to cause problems. So they walk in, you just want to say, hey, foggy today. Yep, it's foggy. And just end the conversation as quick as we can. Because if you get to anything else, they're going to get worked up. They're going to get upset. They're going to have an opinion about something. They're going to get frustrated. And there's nothing you can do. I used to think with scoffers that if I just spent more time with them, take them out for lunch, get to know them, get to know them better, if I would just talk to them and just encourage them. No, it doesn't work. Because when you get together with them, it just gives them more of a soapbox and a platform to tell you everything they think. And so I used to think, okay, I'm going to build this relationship, and then they'll contact me, and we'll get a chance to talk about things because they'll be wanting to go deeper. Yeah, when they contact me, it's just to contact me to tell me I'm wrong. So I got this thing that I've started doing, and, and I've been out here now for, I'm in my 19th year, and it took me 18 years to figure out how to do this, is I take one breakfast a week, and I fast and pray for all the scoffers I know. Pray for them by name. That's why you can never see my prayer journal. Because your name may be in there. God loves you. I'm struggling with you, but God loves you. I pray, I fast, and I pray Colossians 4, 6. That I would have my words seasoned with salt. I would have my words with grace. And I would know how to answer each one. Because I know I'm going to run into people. I know I'm going to run into scoffers. And I know I need to be prayed up and ready for it. Because if you're not prayed up and ready for it, it doesn't go well. You walk in eggshells. You walk in fear of saying the wrong thing. You walk in what about this or that. And that's what we're going to talk about today. There's the arrogant pride, the haughty mockers, boasters, scoffers that are dangerous people to be around. And their pride is so dangerous that the Bible says there's really no way to fix them until they're broken by Jesus Christ. So you live with them. You work with them, you go to church with them, and you talk to them. And as you're talking to them, you go, I don't know what to do. The Bible says there's nothing you can do. So we've already laid the foundation here, Proverbs 21, 24. They're proud, they're haughty, they're arrogant. Scoffer is his name. Next one, Proverbs 14, 6. A scoffer seeks wisdom and does not find it. But knowledge is easy to him who understands. They seek wisdom. Well, see, James, they're not bad. They're seeking their own wisdom. They're seeking their own plan. They're not seeking the wisdom of God. They're not seeking the wisdom of a born-again believer. They just want their own wisdom that makes it look good for themselves, that fulfills their plans, their dreams, or whatever. I think back to this, that idea of where we pray in the Lord's Prayer, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done. No, they want to build their own kingdom. They want to build their own little castle down here and have everybody go their way, do their own thing. They're seeking wisdom and they don't find it. Why can't they find wisdom? I mean, we just read about how wisdom slaughters the meat, mixes the wine. Wisdom wants a relationship with us. But scoffers don't want biblical wisdom. They want wisdom that matches what they think. And as long as you agree with the scoffer, you'll have a great relationship with them. Just always tell them they're right. Always tell them they're great. Always tell them that the Lord only speaks through them and they have such a deep spiritual knowledge that no one... 
They'll love you. But don't ever try to correct them. Don't ever try to tell them they're wrong because they're not looking for biblical wisdom. See, look at the next one, Proverbs 13. A wise son heeds his father's instructions. A scoffer does not listen to rebuke. They don't. It never crosses their mind that they could be wrong. It never crosses their mind that someone may have a deeper spiritual understanding than them. It never crosses their mind that there could be a better way to do it. And if they ever do come with this idea of, oh, maybe you're right, it's usually this. There's a term in the New Testament called false humility. Where they come across as humble, but it's really a humble pride. And then they almost get prideful about their humbleness. They do not listen to rebuke. Proverbs 15, 12, next one. A scoffer does not love one who corrects him, nor will he go to the wise. They don't want to be corrected. They don't want to be changed. They're not going to go to the wise. They're going to live in their own little world. They're going to build their own little kingdom. They're going to keep confirming that what they do is right and everybody else is wrong. And there's going to be this haughtiness and there's pride where they look down upon everybody else. And if you do have a relationship with one, go to school with them, work with them, go to church with them. You married them. You're raising one. You know how every conversation is difficult. They're always right. They're never wrong. That is a dangerous place to be. So what happens when you do try to correct them? Proverbs 9, 7. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. He who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Get shame for himself. Some of your translation says you will get insults back. You will get abuse back. If you try to correct a scoffer, if you try to rebuke them in love biblically, you will get spiritually bruised and battered. They will not listen to you. They will turn it around. You're the one wrong. They will attack you. You will be the one walking out of that conversation spiritually bruised and battered because they will not listen. You will only get shame for yourself. That's why next verse, Proverbs 9, 8, do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man who'll love you. The Bible says don't even try to correct him. It's not going to work. It took me once again about 17 years to learn that. Because I just thought one more conversation. I mean, just one more time where we just sit down and we can try to be on the same page. Now they don't want to listen. They may pretend they want to listen. They may take a little bit here and there. But ultimately what happens is I'm going to walk out of that conversation spiritually bruised and battered. I'm going to walk out of that conversation insulted. I'm going to walk out of that conversation feeling defeated, discouraged, depressed, whatever. Because the pride in them keep them from changing. And you can't even correct them. And if you correct them, they just hate you. If you try to point them in the right direction and love spiritually, they can't handle it. But you see the difference in verse 8? Do not correct a scoffer lest he hates you. Rebuke a wise man, he'll love you. So how do you want to know if you're a scoffer or not? How do you handle when you find out you're wrong? A wise man accepts the rebuke. A wise man accepts the correction. And a wise man says, I can learn from this. Let's talk about this a little bit. A couple verses. Let's talk about the scoffer first. Can you go with me to Proverbs 29, please? Proverbs 29, verse 1. Proverbs 29, verse 1. Let's talk about do not correct a scoffer lest he hates you. Proverbs 29, 1. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. You try to rebuke, you try to correct, you try to point them in the right direction, their heart, their neck just gets more and more hardened and stubborn, and eventually they're destroyed. 
They lose relationships. They lose connections with people because it is really difficult to be around them. Like I said, you watch every word to not say the wrong thing. You hope certain topics don't come up. You just try to keep conversations trite and trivial and simple because if you get to anything depth, they're just going to get worked up about something. Scoffers always have an opinion and they need to share it. And what happens is they're suddenly destroyed without remedy. Well, what about the other side, about rebuke a wise man who'll love you? Same book, Proverbs. Go with me to Proverbs 13, please. Proverbs 13. Proverbs 13, take a look at verse 18 with me. Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction, who ignores correction. But he who regards a rebuke will be honored. He who regards a rebuke will be honored. The wise man accepts rebuke. No one likes to be corrected. They don't. Because when you're corrected or rebuked, you you did something wrong. But when you're corrected and rebuked, it also shows your heart. The scoffers can't accept it, won't accept it. A wise man will stop and say, maybe there's something to this. Maybe I need to hear this. And you hope that you have people that love you enough to do it. I remember years ago there was a situation where Dawn had to rebuke me about something. Did I like it? No. Did it make me upset? Yeah. Did I respond the way I should have? Probably not. She was right, though. And I remember thinking, okay, and I didn't say this to her at the time because I don't want to encourage her, but I remember thinking, (laughs) I I have a wife that's not only my wife, she's my sister in Christ that's willing to call me out on stuff. Wow, what a blessing that is. What a blessing that is. Let's talk about an example. We've already talked about scoffers. What about a guy that did take a rebuke? And it says, rebuke a wise man, he'll love you. Great example in that, the Bible is David. Great example is David. We're going to do a real quick Real quick study here on David. If we had time, it would be great to show Saul as the scoffer and David as the wise man. But time does not permit us to do that. So I'm just going to focus on David here being rebuked, but yet handling it as a wise man. Quick story, and you already know most of it. 2 Samuel chapter 11, David and Bathsheba. You know what happens. David's being lazy, should have been out to war. He's in the evening. He sees Bathsheba bathing. He says, I want Bathsheba. I like Bathsheba. Bathsheba comes over. David and Bathsheba are intimate. Next thing you know, no harm, no foul. Let's just pretend it never happened. David gets word that Bathsheba is now pregnant. Oh, now we got a problem. we got to hide this sin somehow. David's great idea is this. I'm going to bring Bathsheba's husband's home, whose name is Uriah, because Uriah is a good soldier, one of David's mighty men that's out fighting a battle. So Uriah will come home, and since he's coming home to see his wife, obviously they'll have a moment of intimacy, and we'll just say that it's Uriah's child. Uriah comes home, and Uriah is too much of an honorable man, and says, I won't be with my wife because there's other men out in the field. How could I be with my wife? David says, this guy's too good. So now i got to get him drunk. So I'll get him drunk, and then that way he'll be with his wife. Well, he gets him drunk, and next thing you know, Uriah passes out. So now Uriah needs to go back. David says, I don't know what to do. The only thing I can do is kill Uriah, but I can't just kill Uriah. So I'm going to put Uriah in the heat of the battle, retreat everybody else, and Uriah will die a hero's death in battle. And that's what happens. And then Bathsheba comes over and David says, oh, here's the widow. What would a good loving king do? Just take her as my wife. And we have a honeymoon baby and everything's great. Everything's completely covered up. No one knows. Here's the problem. God knows. So now you're in 2 Samuel chapter 12. So there's a man that shows up by Nathan the prophet. Nathan is a wonderful man in the Bible. I encourage you to study him out. Nathan shows up, calls David out publicly in front of everybody. 
saying what you did was wrong, what you did was sinful, and you're wrong. David's response, I have sinned against the Lord. Goes through the Spirit and writes Psalm 51, a great psalm of repentance and restoration in the Lord. David heeded the rebuke. David loved the man that rebuked him. How do we know David loved the man that rebuked him? Fast forward, probably about 20 years. David is dying. Kingdom is being passed over to his son. He asks Nathan to help transfer the power to Solomon, his son. We know from Chronicles, it seems we can piece together. David has a son later by Bathsheba and names him Nathan. So Nathan, the man that publicly called out David, publicly rebuked him. David accepted the rebuke, accepted the wise man, loved Nathan to have Nathan become part of the transitional team of power and also named a child after him. That shows what a wise man does. I was wrong, I hear you, I accept it, and I want to move forward. Right now, I think out here at Harvest, I think we have like six ladies pregnant. I am planning on rebuking every one of their husbands and hoping that they name their child James. I'm just going to throw that out there real quick. It hasn't happened. In 20 years, no one's named their kid James yet. I just want to let everybody know that. If you're thinking of a good Bible name, if you want to go girls named Jamie, I'm just throwing it out there. So, <laughs> David is a great example of the wise man accepting rebuke. Saul's a great example of the scoffer not. So, what have we learned here on page one? Pride, haughtiness, really not seeking wisdom. They don't listen to rebuke. They won't go to the wise. They don't love the one that corrects them. And if you go try to correct them and talk to them and say, oh, I can get to this guy, you're going to walk away spiritually bruised and battered by how they treat you. So finally, Proverbs 9, 8, don't correct them. This is between them and the Lord. You know, the Bible says reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. Sometimes you've got to step back and say, listen, this is, this is between you and the Lord. I can't change this personality trait, this pride that you have. Now, you may be thinking, okay, well, James, that's easy. If you just have a casual relationship, I work with these people. I live with these people. I'm married to a scoffer. 1 Corinthians 7 says the witness of the wife or the husband is so powerful in a marriage it is. Do not grow weary in doing good, for in due season you shall reap if you do not lose heart. Get prayed up. Get your armor of God on. Learn from these scriptures. And I'm telling you right now, what changed for me was setting aside a meal once a week to fast over them, to pray over them. And Lord, Colossians 4, 6, let my words be seasoned with salt, with grace, that I know how to answer them when the conversation comes up. Flip your sheets over, please. Strike a scoffer and the simple will become wary. Rebuke one who has understanding and he will discern knowledge. When the scoffer is punished, the simple is made wise, but when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. Okay, now hold on a second here, James. We just read, just flip the sheet over, do not correct a scoffer. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame. A scoffer does not love one who corrects him. A scoffer not listen to rebuke. And now the Bible is telling me to go strike them, please don't take that literal, and to also then go correct them. Why? If you just told me not to, why are you telling me to? Look at how this is worded now. Strike a scoffer and the simple will become weary. When the scoffer is punished, the simple is made wise. See, you have scoffers that will not listen to rebuke and cannot be corrected. But you have this other group of people, the simple, that we've already talked about before. They're not mentally dumb. They're not spiritually smart. They're foolish. They're naive. 
They're not walking in wisdom, but they're not a scoffer. And the Bible is saying this. Rebuke the scoffer, correct the scoffer, because you're not doing it for the scoffer. They won't listen. You're doing it for everybody else to see, for them to learn the lesson. So that way the simple-minded don't become scoffers. There's times, and you guys that have kids at home, you know this. Sometimes something happens with one of the boys, and the, one of the disciplines for the boys is also to be a life lesson to the other boys. We can't do this. There's a reason why throughout the New Testament, the New Testament keeps telling us the purpose of the Old Testament was to also reveal to us examples of what to do and what not to do. So when you read the Old Testament, you're also reading and learning and saying, what can I learn from these people? So they were punished, they were disciplined as an example for us. I remember when I first started understanding the sin of complaining. Now, I always knew Philippians 2.14. Do all things without complaining. Okay, got it, don't complain. But I really didn't get do all things without complaining until I read the book of Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Exodus, and I realized how angry God got when Israel complained. That Old Testament example made the New Testament verse more relevant to me. So when we go correct the scoffers, rebuke the scoffers, punish the scoffers, other people see this, the simple, and they're made wise. Because they stop and say, I don't want to become that person. I don't want to go through that. What are scoffers like? Next verse, Proverbs 24, 9. The devising of foolishness is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to men. One translation says, everyone detests the scoffer. They're hard to be around. Hard to have a conversation with them because you don't know where it's going to go. They're just going to get worked up. They're going to get upset. They're abomination. You know, we're getting into the holiday season here, hard to believe. And you've got some family members that are scoffers. Spiritual side of you says, I hope they come to Thanksgiving and Christmas so I can represent Jesus. The fleshly side of you says, I hope they don't come. Blessed subtraction. They're difficult to be around. They're an abomination to men. Next one, Proverbs 29. Scoffers set a city aflame. Wise men turn away wrath. Scoffers left unchecked, they'll destroy ministries. They'll destroy churches. They'll destroy relationships. They'll destroy work. I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about. You have worked at a place with a scoffer where you dread one individual. One individual dictates your joy for the entire day. And you know what I'm talking about. You get to work and they're on a different line. They're on a different shift. They called in sick. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, there's peace. There's peace. I know people that are married to scoffers. And they'll come sometimes to me and say, listen, I know this sounds awful, but I'm glad when he's not home. It just goes so much better. Why? Because they're setting the city aflame. Proverbs 22.10 Cast out the scoffer and contention will leave. Yes, strife and reproach will cease. They're not there. It's easier. Sometimes biblically you have to. Sometimes you're in relationships and work situations where you can't. That's why you need to be fasted up, prayed up, get your armor on. Spouses praying for their wives and the husbands that are a scoffer. Proverbs 19.29, judgments are prepared for scoffers. Beatings for the backs of fools. You're not going to see a verse here about scoffers where it says, hey, just do this and it will be okay. No, what you see is judgment has to come upon them. That pride, that arrogance is so absolutely destructive. They won't listen. Can scoffers become not scoffers? I don't know what the antonym of a scoffer is. Yeah, I've seen it happen. 
I'm going to be honest with you, it took years. Because generally when you run into a scoffer, especially if you're in the older age group, that personality trait they developed has been developed for decades. They're just used to acting this way. Until they really get touched by who Jesus Christ is, or if they are a Christian, until they really understand love and grace and mercy. Oh, man. I mean, I just keep back to Saul and David, and I wish we had time to really develop that point. Saul, who is the scoffer that is throwing javelins and spears at David. David, who is the rightful king, been anointed. Here's Saul asleep, and David has the chance to kill him. David says, I won't do it. He just cuts off an edge of his garment. And David is actually so convicted by even touching the garment because this is God's anointed. David is such a man after God's own heart that he stops and says that was wrong. And Saul is just constantly angry and prideful. Hard to be around. Hard to be around. So if you work with them, if you live with them, you're married to them, you're raising them, get fasted up, get prayed up. verse I use is Colossians 4, 6. Get your armor of God on and be prepared for it every single day. The Lord can move in their hearts. The Lord can be a softening. There's no doubt about that. And I tell you, if you're here today and maybe there's a little check in your spirit on this, I tell you, ask the Lord to really reveal. Reveal what your heart's like. Most of the scoffers I run into don't even realize the destructive path they leave. To be quite honest, some of them actually enjoy leaving the city aflame. They take it as some badge of honor that they are the only ones that get it. They're the only ones that understand. No one else does. And they almost take it as this badge of honor that they're leaving people in their wake because of just how mighty and powerful they are. It's a dangerous person to be. That's why we wanted to spend time today understanding it because as we get into Proverbs 10 next week and we see the little reference to a scoffer, that's a very important word. As a word that you normally don't use, and maybe starting today now, you at least have a definition of who they are. And now you're probably thinking of people you know saying, I never could really put a label on that person's personality. But that's who they are. They're a scoffer. And that person is dangerous, and I need to pray for them. I need to pray to be around them. And I need to be prayed up through the Lord and ready in the Spirit for that. Worship team, if you come forward here for the final song. So next week we get into these little nuggets of Proverbs I'm really excited about. Such a blessing there. Real quick FYI, I want to let everybody know, um, taking off this afternoon, we'll be back Wednesday before church. We have our uh, pastor's conference over in Indiana. So I will be leaving this afternoon. Have a blessed time at the harvest party. And I also just want to publicly say a big thank you to everybody that did so much with the prayer conference yesterday. Many, many hours went into that, and what a blessing that was for those that could come out. Big thanks to everybody helping the harvest party. Leaving this afternoon, so I won't be around for a couple days if you try to get a hold of me. I will be back Wednesday before church and be back out here to teach uh, First John Wednesday. Hey, let's pray. Lord, we just want to represent you in every interaction we have and every conversation we have. And if there's scoffers in our midst, help us to love them as you love them. But Lord, help us to be prayed up and ready for all those conversations and always say and do. Lord, speak to our heart. If there's some of that in us, reveal that, that we may truly be walking in purity of heart with you. If we need to be rebuked, help us to be the wise man that hears this. Lord, we want to eat at the table of wisdom, not at the table of foolishness. No matter how attractive that simple bread and water look, we want the full meal of wisdom.
Help us to walk in your wisdom and always say and do. And Lord, help us to walk in the fear of the Lord today. And we love you and thank you in your name.